neighbors. <laughs> Denver, Colorado, right? These issues could be either eliminated or drastically reduced. At-risk kids, childhood hunger, domestic violence, alcohol abuse, drug abuse, elderly that are isolated, all of these could either be eliminated or drastically reduced if we just could figure out a way of how to become great neighbors. It's interesting because one of the authors of the, of the book, Jay uh, Pathak actually, he said, you know, what we realized was that what this mayor was telling us in a secular sense was that if we could just figure out how to do the second half of the great commandment really, really well, it would have an impact that was unmistakable in our communities. <laughs> you know, God's already given the remedy is what he was getting at. So they called together more meetings, and a part of this meeting was a an assistant city manager from one of those neighboring areas. And listen to what she said. This was her assessment. She said, from the city's perspective, right? We're not looking at this as pastors or churches or spiritually. Just from the city perspective. This is an assistant city manager speaking 10 years ago in the Denver area. From our city's perspective, there is no noticeable difference in how Christians and non-Christians neighbor in our community. We've looked at this from a city perspective, and we don't see any difference on the ground between how those who don't have a relationship with God and don't even profess to know Him or to care anything about Him, we see no difference between how they neighbor in their community and how those who love Jesus and go to church every week neighbor in their community. There is no noticeable difference between the two. You know, it's interesting because we live in a culture where neighborhoods are a big deal, don't we? That's just a part of the fabric of life. I've been to a few different countries through the years on mission trips, and I've been in different contexts, and it's interesting because it's not just an American thing. It's also just a, it's, it's a worldwide thing. I mean, neighborhoods are a part of life. It doesn't matter where you go, you're going to be more than likely whether it's paved city streets that look super you know, nicely lit and well-maintained in Europe, or whether it's somewhere in a jungle in some unreached part of the world where there are no paved streets and there is no electricity, but yet there is a sense of community there. Neighborhoods are a part of the fabric of life, right? Even our television shows represent this and, and, and recognize this. Take a look at this screen behind me. You may remember this, this TV show. This is going back a few years. Right, home improvements. Let me remember that. The context is funny. Kaylin's running media for us. Kaylin is tenth grade. I said, Kaylin, you ever you know anything about the show? She said, Nope. <laughs> she didn't. wasn't even on the radar at all. And uh, so some of you maybe you can't relate. Others of you 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 can't relate from the '90s. This was one of the most popular, if not the most popular, TV show in the '90s. Home Improvement. Of course, it featured Tim the Toolman. And uh, his wife and all of his uh, mess-ups and his three, you know, his extended family, his three kids, and, and how he had this TV show, and he was a handyman and never did anything right. But then he had this neighbor as well. You remember the neighbor's name? Wilson, right? And you remember him looking over the fence and uh, kind of a neat little thing with the show. You never got to see text. There was a neighborhood, and it was a neighborly relationship. And what Tim the Toolman would do is he would go out in that backyard, and he would look over the picket fence, and he would bear his soul to Wilson at times. And he would have all these deep conversations, and sometimes it would be funny, and sometimes it would be serious. But there was this context to where there was a connection between the neighbors. And neighborhoods are a part of life, right? It's what we can relate to. And virtually for everybody, I would say, in this room right here, most of you, not all of you, most of you live in the islands community. 
The rest of you live in Savannah, or some of you live uh, out just on the outskirts, maybe. We've got one couple that drives all the way from Portal, that's on the other side of uh, Statesboro, come here every single Sunday, serving, working a front door, greeting people Sunday, weekend, and week out, right? But most of us live here in 31410. And so we can understand, we can relate to what it's like to have a neighbor. You can take that picture down, Kaylin, if you will. And I remember when I was a kid, as I was preparing this message, I thought back to, what was my neighborhood like? Because our family lived in the same house for a long, long time. And so when I was born, that's where I grew up, all the way through high school and on into college. I mean, our family lived there. And uh, we lived on a dirt road off of Bonaventure. It wasn't paved until, I think, my senior year of high school or maybe first year of college or so. And, uh, you know, we just had neighbors that had been there for a long, long time. And I thought about those neighbors when I was putting together this, uh, this message, and I was reminded that, you know, sometimes we have interesting neighbors, and sometimes our neighbors have stories, and sometimes you're the neighbor, and you're the one who is their story, Right. But I remember my neighbors, and I thought about Sue, who lived next door to us for as long as I can remember as a little kid. And Sue was really nice <clears throat> when she wasn't drinking. And, and when she was drinking, she was not so nice. And uh, she would call our house a lot of times in the middle of the night and like, shut those dogs up. And, the, you know, we had to cover our ears because it wasn't always the best language in the world. And uh, we, had a, we had dogs, and she didn't like our dogs, and she especially didn't like our dogs barking. So to her, we were that neighbor, Right. But then also, to us, she was kind of a unique neighbor as well. And I remember my mom and dad, they just befriended her, and they came alongside of her, and they were, you know, they spent time with her, and my dad helped her out at times in her life when she had some needs and everything. And, and I remember her. She was our next-door neighbor. Down the street, across the street, just sort of a stone's throw, just past the ditch that when it overflowed, we had a place to, uh, to play in the puddles, right? On the other side of that ditch, there were the Boykins. And the Boykins, I remember them because they were an older couple. And the one thing that I remember about them, besides the fact that they had a yard that seemed to always be perfect because he was always out there working in it, was the fact that they had a really, really deep walk with God. It's about the only thing I remember about them. They loved the Lord. And they weren't afraid to talk about their relationship with the Lord with a little 10-year-old, 11-year-old boy that lived in their neighborhood. Across the street, the other direction from us was our neighbor named Tony. Tony was a retired merchant marine. And uh, my dad had nicknames for everybody he ever met. Um, some of you knew my dad. Most of you probably didn't. But if he met you, he probably gave you a nickname. And Tony was Tonye to my dad. So when we'd ride down the street and the window was down, my dad, hey, Tonye. Uh, he was the only one I knew that called him that. And I'm sure Tony probably hated it. But Tony lived there, and he was, again, a retired merchant marine. He had a parrot in his house. Now, how cool is that? When you're a little kid, I mean, this parrot talked. And, uh, and the other thing about Tony was that he always gave out snacks. He had the best candy in the whole neighborhood. But his mom, his mom was interesting. She was about 191 years old. She sat in a rocking chair virtually every single time I ever saw her. She was on the plane. And, uh, and that's a little bit traumatizing to a kid at times, but that's just the way it was. I'm not being disrespectful, right? That's just the way life was. That's the way, that's the way she did. And, uh, and so, so they lived kind of over there. And then there was the, the family as far as I knew, they didn't have faces, and as far as I knew, they never went outside because we didn't know them, we didn't know their names, didn't know anything about them, but the one thing I remember was apparently they could not hear because you could, no lie, hear their television from their house at the end of the street all the way down to our house where we were, right? I don't know who they were. We didn't know their names. I never heard them mentioned at all at the dinner table. I don't know if our family even had ever laid eyes on them. Maybe it was just a TV that lived there. I have no idea. 
But it was a very, very loud television, I can tell you that. And then down the street and around the corner where my buddies lived, and we grew up just playing ball and stuff like that out in the street and riding bikes and everything, <clears throat> there was a lady who lived on the, uh, on the corner. She shall rename, re- remain nameless unless she is related. And um, she was uh, about 180 years old. And uh, if you hit a baseball in her yard, that baseball was G-O-N-E, gone. She would come out, and she would get that baseball, and she would go back inside again. Now, it's funny, if you only knew now what you knew, or knew then what you knew now, we could have jumped the fence, got out of that yard, gotten 35 baseballs, and jumped the fence again before she ever got off the porch, right? She's 180 years old. She would have never been able to catch us, but legend had it. <laughs> this, is, this is what I heard, that when she died, and they went into that house, they were baseballs, baseballs. <laughs> right? Those are our neighbors, man. I mean, and if they were a preacher today, they could stand and tell stories about the kales, right? You know, always chasing the dog that got out of the backyard, you know, and all kind of crazy goofball stuff, you know. It's neighbors. It's the way life is. It's the way life goes. It's, it's the culture in which we live. You've got stories like that. You may be the story like that, right, for some of your neighbors when you grew up or your neighbors still today, possibly. But, you know, here, here's, the, here's what maybe we've never thought about, and this is what I want us to chew on a little bit today. What if, right, God is a big God, and God is a God. We are easily able to say God is in control of the details of life, and, and I totally, completely agree with that. But a lot of times we don't live that out practically. We don't take it to its conclusion. If we say that God is in control of the details of our lives, and all of us, I think most of us, would agree to that. Can we also then agree that possibly, more than likely, the very place where you live has also been orchestrated by a God who's in control of the details of your life? And could we agree that very possibly, I would even say most likely, the very street or the very uh, um, unit where you live, the place where you work, the school where you attend, the circles that you navigate are orchestrated by a God who controls every detail of our lives. And right down to the place where you spend the bulk of your time God has put you there by a divine design. And even more than this, what if when Jesus said to love your neighbor as yourself, what if he literally meant your literal neighbor? You see, it's real easy, isn't it, for us to say, oh, Jesus, love my neighbor. Well, that's really easy to do. And so this is one of the things I love how this this, this book and and the author, Jay, or Dave, kind of pulls it out. He says, we end up having this, this, this uh, almost like a mystical, hazy view of loving my neighbor as ourself. And so we, we have these, these mystical neighbors in mind, and we're mystically, metaphorically going to love them with all that we are. And what happens is nothing ever gets translated into real action. But what God wants, I believe, from us is to understand that he has put us where we are by his divine design. And the people that are around us are there by his divine design as well. And rather than just talking about loving our neighbor, what if Jesus really meant, I've given your neighbors to you, now go love them? (laughs) What if he meant that literally? Not just saying out loud, hey, I'm going to say a statement that's going to blow everybody away. They're going to write it down in this big book called the Bible. They're going to be talking about this for centuries. Love your neighbor as yourself. Boy, that is awesome. They're going to put this on bumper stickers in Christian shirts, and it's going to be on banners hanging in churches. 
Well, Jesus, you think anybody will ever do it? I didn't mean for them to do it. It just sounds good. That was not his intent. And what if your literal neighbors are who he was literally talking about when he said, love your neighbors as yourself? Two principles, and we'll sift it through a passage in Matthew 22. First principle is this, your neighborhood is a mission field. Your neighborhood is a mission field. I've been on a lot of mission trips through the years. Stateside mission trips, internationally to Hungary and to Mexico and Philippines and Cuba. I don't know, I might be missing one in there somewhere. Some of you have been on trips like that. And I've and I distinctly remember, you know, you go, you prepare and you plan and we go off on these kinds of trips. And while we're there, man, we are all in. I mean, it's just our lens is missions. Right, the relationships we build or the conversations that we have and the work that we do. We serve people and we help people and we're praying for people. And we're doing stuff that we've never done before. I mean, knocking on doors and giving away gifts and having gospel conversations, just loving people for where they are. doesn't matter what color they are, what language they speak, or where they've been, or what they've done, or how nice their house is. We just come right in there, and we sit down in the dirt and the dust and, and 190 degrees, and we're just wiping sweat, just loving people, right? Some, so many of us have been there. We've done that. And yet here's what often happens for, for a lot of us. And then we come back from that trip. And we settle back into our culture, and we get back into our groove and work and ball games and hobbies and going to church and all that kind of stuff. And we get back into our groove, and what, what happens is we go mission blind to where we never see really the mission that is right here around us. And we go and we, we knock on doors over there in Cuba or over there in the Philippines or out there, wherever we may, may go, New Orleans with the students or wherever it might be. And we knock on doors, we have conversations. But when we come back home, we drive into the garage and we click the button and the garage door comes down and the TV goes on and we don't even know who our neighbors are closest to us. And then a hurricane hits, and nobody has power, and everybody's sharing their food, and you're cooking, making cookies on an outdoor grill with a propane tank, right? pancakes, and all that kind of stuff, and everybody's on their front porch because there's no air, and it's coolest out there, and people are having conversations, and cutting down each other's tree limbs, and hauling it out to the street, and everybody's neighbors again, and then it all gets cleaned up, and the sun comes out, and the power comes on, and back to the living room. And we come back from trips like that, or we step out of experiences like that, and, and we make a comment that sounds so good, but beneath the surface is so sad. We get back off the plane after landing from some exotic location or some missions outpost, and we say, that was the greatest experience of my life. And it sounds so good, but beneath the surface it's so sad. Because at the most, probably we'll only experience that a handful of times. For some, maybe even only once. And the translation is, is that never again will I have an experience, even with lives that have been planted and dropped down by God's divine design right in my literal backyard of people who need to see what God looks like. I'm not going to see those but I had that one greatest experience in my Christian life when I went on that mission trip. Your neighborhood 
is a mission field. Principle number two, by virtue of being a Christian, then, if you are, that makes you a missionary. Makes me a missionary. Not when I go to Cuba, hopefully in the fall. Not when I go to some other mission trip somewhere. It makes me a missionary when I drive home today and pull up into the driveway. I'm on my mission field. With my neighbor this side and my neighbors that side and my neighbors across the street, it puts me on the mission field. And if I go out for a walk or when I drive through that community and down my street, I'm driving down my mission field. <laughs> because I'm a missionary, whether I want to be or not, by God's divine design, He's planted me there for a purpose. Jesus had a little bit to say about this, Matthew chapter 22. I'll give you some context and we'll jump into the passage that you're already familiar with. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 22, Jesus is in a conversation, and it's a religious conversation. Not all of his conversations were religious, by the way, or in a religious setting, I should say. But Jesus here is in a religious setting. He's got two different religious groups, both that were opposed to him, uh, both that were opposed to each other, actually, but they were unified behind their rejection of Christ. One was a group called the Sadducees, the other was a group called the Pharisees. The Pharisees were like kind of the religious rulers, in a sense, uh, outside of the temple leaders. They were the religious rulers in first century Judaism. The Sadducees, a little lesser known, but they still carried some weight and authority nonetheless. The Sadducees, this religious group, they had rejected the resurrection. They didn't believe in the resurrection. There were certain components of, uh, uh, the, we'll just say the supernatural, right? Not weird, but just spiritual things that they had rejected. And they had also rejected Jesus. And so here in Matthew 22, we won't read this passage, but basically they're having a conversation with Jesus and they're trying to trip him up. They're, they're trying to paint him into a corner and they're trying to just lock him down to where he doesn't have a right answer. He's going to say something heretical or blasphemous. And finally, they can say, boom, we got you. You know, here's your comment. We've got it written down. We got it on, you know, we got it on tape. You know, it's kind of one of those moments. They're trying to tra just trap him. And the way they do this is they ask him a question. Remember, they didn't believe in the resurrection. The Sadducees didn't. So one of them asks him and says, well, well, Jesus, tell us this. Let's just say there's a man and he's married and he passes away. And this is going to sound odd to you, but in their culture, this would have been understood. And let's just say that he passes away. Well, his widow then marries his brother. And let's just say he passes away and then she marries the next brother and he passes away. At the end of the story, there, I think, are six or seven brothers we're talking about who've now been married to this person. It's a hypothetical question they're asking to him. And they said, okay, Mr. Jesus, so in the resurrection, ha-ha, right, because they didn't believe in it, whose husband, which one of these guys is going to be her husband? Oh, Jesus just dismantles it. I mean, you can read it in chapter 22. Just dismantles the question. And that's where we pick up. Because there was another group who didn't care for him, called the Pharisees. And it's their question that we're going to camp out on and look at a little more intently. Matthew chapter 22. Let's jump in verse 34 and see what Matthew shares with us about this conversation with the Pharisees. Matthew 22, verse 34. So when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, right? He just dismantled that whole scenario, the whole question. 
they gathered themselves together. <laughs> you can almost see. All right, time to call a huddle. So you got all these Pharisees with all their robes. They're huddling up. And they're whispering. Did you hear what they just said to them? He just like sent them packing with that answer. Oh, I don't know what we're going to say. I don't know what we can ask him. I don't know how we're going to trap him. I don't know how we're going to do this. So they're huddling and they're whispering. They're making their play and they finally call the play. Verse 35. So one of them, a lawyer, asks him, asks Jesus a question. They finally got it. All right, let's just put him out here. He, this is a great question. Yeah, go ask him. Go ask him the question. And so he steps up and he says, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Now, let me just pause there for just a moment, because the law represents, in a sense, at least in an accurate form, the law would be a reference to, to what God had instituted in the Old Testament to show us our sin. There was a moral law that never changes. There was ceremonial law. I mean, there were just different aspects of the law. But in a very simple form, the law was designed to show us that we're sinners, right? If there are no laws, if there are no rules, we don't know whether we are lawbreakers, <laughs> right? But when there's a law in place, we know when we've overstepped that boundary and it reveals our sin. That's kind of how the New Testament explains the Old Testament law. It never designed to make us right with God. It was designed to show us that we needed a Savior from ourselves because we are wrecked and we need help. And so when they reference the law, that's, that's biblically what God had given, and the law was good. What the Jewish leaders had done through the years was they also had added to and kind of tweaked that just a bit, and they kind of rolled in some of their own stuff in a sense. There were 248 positive laws saying, do this, do that, do this, do that. And then there were also 365 negative laws. Don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that. 613 all total. Now remember, some of those had been tweaked, adjusted by man. So the... The lawyer, the Pharisee representative steps up. So, teacher, Jesus, you and I both know, as well as anybody, we've got these 613 laws. Tell us which one's the most important, which one is the greatest commandment out of all 613. Jesus answers verse 37, and he said to him, this is in all caps, simply because it's an Old Testament quote from Deuteronomy 6. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. That's a great answer. The Pharisees would have been able to say, that's a pretty good answer. right? Love the Lord your God with everything that you are. This was the foundational command. This was the most important command. This is the great commandment, part A. Part one, the great commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. Everything else flows out of that. If we love God, we're going to follow him. If we love God, we're going to trust him. If we love God, we're going to obey him. Everything would flow out of this, but Jesus wasn't finished yet. You would think he answered the question, but he wasn't done. And as they began to scatter, you can almost see it. He's like, whoa, 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 I'm not done I'm not finished. I've got something else to say. Look at the next verse, verse 39. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he gives a little commentary on these two commandments depend the whole law and prophets. Remember, people in the first century, they didn't have the whole Bible. They didn't have the New Testament. They had the Old Testament. 
they had the Old Testament scriptures. They had the Pentateuch, which was the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, the law. And then you had the prophet written by Moses. Well, God wrote it through Moses. They had that. That was sort of called the law. And then you had the prophets, which when Jesus says this, that the, the, the law and the prophets depend on those two commandments, he's saying the whole entire Old Testament depends on those two commandments. And I really don't think that if he came back today and gave commentary on this, I don't think that he would say uh, anything different except, oh, and the whole New Testament depends on it too. I mean, it's, it's that important. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love him with everything that's in you. Love him increasingly. Love him exponentially as you grow. But that's not where it ends, love your neighbor as yourself. What if he literally meant love your literal neighbor who lives right there where he's planted you? What if that's what he meant? <laughs> he doesn't give any qualification. Oh, just love the ones that are like you. Just love the ones who were sort of at the same education level as you. Just love the ones that are pretty much at the same socioeconomic level as you. Love the ones who kind of drive something similar to you do. Love the ones whose kids always behave. Just love those. Just love the ones that you never hear them arguing when their doors are closed, but their walls are really thin. Don't love the ones who do all that. Just love the ones you've never heard having those kind of issues. In their life. No, just love the ones that are the same color as you. Love the ones that are, that are just like you because I'm a big God and somebody else, somebody else will get the rest of them. That's not what he says. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. And the whole entire scripture, he would say, depends on doing that well. And yet one commentary from one assistant city manager 10 years ago in Denver would say there's no noticeable difference between the way that followers of Jesus and non-followers of Jesus love their neighbor. You know, very few of Jesus's personal conversations were in a religious setting. A lot of his group ones were, like we just read, right? But a lot of his personal conversations were not in a religious setting. The woman at the well, John 4, was not in a religious setting. The woman called in adultery, John chapter 8, when he restored her and encouraged her, when he showed grace to her and truth to her, was not in a religious setting. When he spoke to Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, come down and come into your house tonight. That was not in a religious setting. When Matthew trusted Jesus and had a total throwdown party, and invited all of his friends and all of his tax collector buddies who were so far from God, and Jesus showed up at his house. He was the centerpiece of it. That was not in a religious setting. And many of the, of the most personal conversations Jesus had was not in a in a religious setting, what am I getting at? What I'm getting at is this, is that there is a place to invite people to church, and I hope we do it all the time. There is a place to turn the light on outside and say, y'all come. I hope we constantly do that, and I hope, I hope people do come. But listen, when we think about engaging in ministry, when we think about engaging in missions, it is not just going to the Philippines and Cuba and Nevada and New Orleans and wherever else God may open a door. It is even more so about the other 51 weeks of the year, loving the people that God has put right there closest closest to us 
And you say, Brooks, I don't know how to do that. What do you mean, love my neighbor? Am I, am I, what does that even look like? Well, that's why we've taken this step recently called the Everyday Missionary College. That's why we set a goal of 65 everyday missionaries by the end of this year is to help train and to equip and to teach what that looks like. So that we can put feet to the call that God has put in our lives. And when we do it, there will be tears. When we do it, there will be heartache. When we do it, it will cost you. When we do it, there will be people who won't know part of it. But when you do it as well, and you do that the way Jesus commands and calls, there will be seeds planted that can only be rightly seen in eternity. And there will be the benefit and the satisfaction of knowing, you know what? God used me, not on a mission trip in some remote country, but he just used me to bring light into the life of another person. And it may look more practical than you think, and it may look a lot different than you think. But it starts when we answer the call. So here's my question to you. For those of you who have a relationship with Christ, what one practical thing could you maybe do to love your neighbor this week? You probably got someone in mind. You may not know their name. You just know they live next door but you've never met them. You know what? Maybe your step this week is to go, is to pray, God, would you let them be outside at a time when I'm outside? And then don't lock yourself in the whole rest of the week. I should have known this by now, but I'm Brooks. What's your name? Don't tell them you're Brooks. That'd be weird. (laughs) But what's your name? (laughs) Maybe that's, you, you can't love somebody you don't know. Maybe that's where it starts. And if you've never given your life to Jesus, Hey, the first step is not to love your neighbor as yourself. It's to love the Lord your God with all your heart and everything that you are. And the way that looks is when we surrender our sin and invite Jesus to forgive us and take over. And you can do that right where you sit right now. So God, we thank you today for your word. The challenge of your word is not the parts that we don't understand God, the challenge of your word are the parts that we do understand. They're unmistakable and they're so incredibly clear, but they require sacrifice. And Lord, we think about the sheer numbers. If we had 500 adults in this church that live on a street and they just choose to be a missionary to their 10 households on their street, God, that's 5,000 homes reached consistently those homes have two and a half people as statistics would seem to always say it's over 12,000 people reached by an everyday missionary half the population of these islands not because somebody took a mission trip but because we just loved our neighbors well and so God I think maybe that's why Acts is filled with so many prayers that say Lord give us boldness It's because that's what it takes and Lord may us not wait for Maybe not wait for another church or another believer to step in and fill the gap. You put us where we are for a reason. You're not asking us to be Billy Graham or some famous missionary from years gone by. You're just asking us to be us, fully yielded to you who love them. So God, may we answer that challenge. It's not about a program, Lord, it's about a call. God, we ask that you'd use us to do that. For those here this morning that have never given their lives to Jesus, give them the courage today, right where they sit, to pray the simplest prayer they may ever pray. Lord Jesus, I know that I need you. Forgive me and cleanse me of all my sin. And please take over from this day forward. 
And God, we thank you that you hear that prayer every time it's prayed. Bless our response now, we ask in Jesus' name.